This is the Collective Metners Podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films, and we use horror films as a starting point to have discussions about society and culture and people and morality and good and evil and everything else we can think of. I have a lifetime interest in horror and deviance that is due to negative experiences and skepticism about conformity and overconformity and people following the rules to the point where they become toxic more than I have concerns about people who are, quote, abnormal or deviant, end quote, or otherwise stigmatized by society. And I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado. And I really like horror because as we talk about in this episode, actually, horror is a genre that really gives a lot of space for people to share and discuss the most horrific things in life. And I think by making those things visible, it really gives you a lot more space to have appropriate moral discussions about good versus evil when you, when you really feel the impact of what evil means. And this episode, we are doing something a little bit different. Because Jordan Peele is so involved with the newest recreation of The Twilight Zone, we watched The Comedian, the first episode. And this episode is about a comedian who is pushed to confront the impacts of his comedy. Directed by Owen Harris... Written by Alex Rubens, starring Kumail Nanijani, Tracy Morgan, Amara Karan, and Diara Kilpatrick. Jordan Peele is the narrator. He takes the role of Rod Serling for the, for the show. There will be spoilers for this episode of The Twilight Zone. We always encourage you to watch it before you listen to our discussion, because we go in assuming that you, you are familiar with the show we also have spoilers for Dave Chappelle's Netflix stand-up special from two years ago, 2017, maybe. The New Pet Cemetery. The New Pet Cemetery. Was there something else? We talk about Tucker and Dale briefly, but I don't know if I would call that spoilers. Right. And we appreciate you joining us. And with that, we're going to dive into our discussion. I really kind of enjoyed it, I, I, but I've always been a Twilight Zone fan. I have watched, I don't think I've ever watched the whole original series straight through, but I've watched a few of them. There's some of them I've watched several times. The mid-80s revival of the Twilight Zone, I loved. I actually acquired those via the lovely internet at some point, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, and I've rewatched. And that, did you ever watch any of those? Oh, no. God. The opening theme is incredible. The Grateful Dead actually do the Twilight Zone, the music for it. 
And there's an episode of that that maybe we should, maybe when we do something else like this again, because it's like a short, it might even be 20 minutes. It was probably, what were the standards for TV back then? Like 26 minutes per half hour? Because I think now we're down to like 22 or 19. Anyway, um, it might, and sometimes they would do half and half, but it was just called Grandma. And I remember being terrified from that. Just terrified. Still to this day, I can remember it. Um, but anyway, so this, so this is a little bit different for us because it's Twilight Zone. It's, it's really more, uh, I guess, sci-fi fantasy thriller drama than it is horror, but it's Jordan Peele. And despite the great episode loss of 2019, <laughs> where we had a wonderful first discussion about us being lost to the ether. We thought it'd be fun to try and maybe do a little bit of TV. And so he's doing the Twilight Zone, the new Twilight Zone, and we watched the first episode, The Comedian. And it was very Twilight Zone. I I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I like the vibe of it. I think the Twilight Zone generally is very sociological. It's very much about deviance and um, social construction of reality and... I enjoyed it. It wasn't scary at all, but I was okay with that. I appreciated it. it was very like noir and dark and had a had a I'm trying to think of another uh, another word for dark. Why can't I do that? It had a uh, twisted underbelly. I think it was strong for a first episode. There are things I would have liked to have seen go better, but I, I thought it was I don't know. I thought it was a it was like a let's kind of build up let's get going, you know, like a warm up kind of. I don't know. What did you think, Laura? Do you have history with Twilight Zone at all? No, I don't have a history like you do at all. I mean, I've seen it, I guess, a couple times probably in life. I don't. I, I sort of live under a rock, it seems, sometimes. But I don't. I think I've seen it. I must have seen it. I'm sure I've seen it. I mean, I can picture parts of the old Twilight Zone. But I don't have a real strong association with it. I feel like that means you've been out living life. And I've been under the rock watching everything. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. It's like the Twilight Zone. But um, it was it was okay. I actually started to really like it toward the end. What I th- when I think of the Twilight Zone, and I don't know if this is based on actually having seen it or not really, but when I think of it, I think of it as creative ways to take a, a metaphor that has to do with life and present that and, and present it really on the nose, which can be a good thing because it gives you a really clear metaphor to look at some interesting phenomenon that happens in life. And I like that. And often when we talk about films, I like to pull in, I like it when a film presents that kind of metaphor for life, especially when it raises up some concern or conundrum that people face or just some kind of issue that it can really highlight in a way that lets you think about it clearly because it really lays out all the pieces for you. And this very much felt like it did that by the end. I really did about halfway through feel like it it seemed to be pushing in that direction, but not doing it enough. And I somehow, I don't know, I just, I didn't really like it that much halfway through. But by the end, when the, when the comedian's girlfriend walked in and she gave her little speech when he was in, in his show, that's where I really think it came together for me. And, and I wondered then if I was just being really obtuse and like, I didn't see that that's clearly what it was about all along. But when she just laid it out there... So I felt like it really came together when when Samira's girlfriend gave her little speech 
when she walked into his comedy show. And then I started to like it. And I started to think that it really did serve as a, a nice clean metaphor for what they were talking about. It's just not my genre. There's something about the genre. There's something about how it differs from horror. And I don't know why, and it shouldn't matter. It feels like, but there is, there's something about how it differs from horror that makes me a little bit less drawn to it. And I don't know what that is. I, f- I found that interesting through the entire episode. Like it's, it's similar. It's still dealing with the same. You could have a horror film that dealt with exactly those issues. And, and I don't know why. I think I would like the horror film better. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Cause it was shot very much horror. It had elements of like, uh, it had elements of horror. It had elements of horror music with these anxiety swells and music cues. I understood, I thought, where it was going pretty much immediately. I was just saying in the 80s, when they even when they did it as a half-hour show, they would sometimes split that time in half. And I think this could have been cut in half. I think once we understood the concept... I mean, they really walked us through. And they did that. I understand doing that with the initial. But then once the bus stop and is spelled out for us and we know, then a lot of that was filler. Okay, you're just bad people and you're hunting and you're looking. Like a lot of that just didn't, it was over, over explained. Then so what I, what I thought, started thinking about pretty quickly was Are we dealing with a metaphor of creative work and this notion that you have to put these ideas like you write what you know and you have to have lived an interesting life or whatever that means in order to be able to be a a writer or to be able to produce something creative and and have a strong point of view? And, And if you put everything into your art that's when you will be successful and connect with people. But that's, uh, and that means giving it up. And I was, so I started thinking about, I don't know if I really think that, that means giving it up. I felt like the message was, okay, you, by using up what's around you in your life or your experiences, your history in your work, you may get success out of that, but it, it like kills, it kills that off. It like uses it up literally. And I was like, I don't know if I, I don't really think that's true. I think you can grow from using your experiences and what's around you to, as fodder for a creative project. I I was like, I don't think it needs to be a, a subtractive process. And I felt like that was really where they went. And then I started thinking about, well, would that be any different with comedy? Maybe. But I did appreciate that those were the ideas that I, very quickly started thinking with. I mean, I think those are interesting, big questions. And then I also appreciated that it seemed to be a second major idea that came in, which was if you had this power to just render things non-existent, could you use that for good? And what did it say? I guess it said that you can... But you can go too far with it pretty quickly because none of the other stuff was problematized. Like he made all these other people, presumably like a whole book full of people disappear. (laughs) And there was never any other comeuppance. 
for him until it was his life and he's he omitted I'll, I'll use this word he annihilated candle condell whatever his his girlfriend's mentor slash who's sitting on her and then so that seemed uneven i would have liked something else where he made something disappear and maybe the bus stop was back there but now it's Okay, so great, the bus stop is back, but now, like, somebody's selling crack from the bus stop, or their vandals are hanging out there, or muggers are hanging out there. Something, you know, which would seem to me very, I guess you don't have that twistery, but that would seem much more Twilight Zone-y to me. And that's more like butterfly effect kind of stuff, right? Which is, that's all fun and cool. And then what I thought the twist was going to be is I thought he was going to get rid of the comedy club. I thought he was going to get rid of Eddie because he didn't really need to get rid of himself, right? If he had just gotten rid of Eddie's, he would not have ever, or Eddie, which would have by virtue then gotten rid of the comedy club. It would have like rebooted the whole thing. And then we would have just gone back to that. And then I wanted to see what would happen. Okay. So a few things. Yeah. So that was a lot. That was like all my thoughts. Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate you. Uh, you letting me run with that. Well, I, I want to move back to the first one. So the idea that the creative process is somehow using up or destroying these elements in your life. i That's why I found Samir's girlfriend's uh, little monologue there to be really helpful. Because when she pinned it particularly on comedy and this idea that in order to raise yourself up, you're putting other people down. I thought that was the crux of that argument, which makes it much more on the nose and clear. And like, you thought that was comedy specific? Well, or it was just comedy specific in the. I think it might be highlighted more in comedy, but it might be a general life lesson even outside of comedy that if you if you raise yourself up by putting other people down, and if you if you try to gain your status by differentiating yourself from others and making them worse, which can have tie-ins to racism and other, other sort of larger that. concepts outside of just artistic expression, but would be valid, I think, in in artistic expression in general and probably comedy is a particularly good type of artistic expression to to highlight that with but this idea that that you can get broad public appeal and people will cheer for you and people will support you and it, it maybe it makes you feel good about yourself but in terms of what you're doing to society what you're doing is really harm on the people that you're putting down and and Really, maybe more broadly, I think you can tie that into like the first joke that he kept wanting to make about the Second Amendment. And he's, you know, he's trying to make an argument about the world and how we should really think. And he, like, he's trying to have some sort of useful political commentary in his comedy. And well, nobody wants that. And everybody keeps saying, Oh, that's the Second Amendment's not funny. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. But if you pick on somebody and say how awful they are, everybody's going to laugh at that. And don't you want that? And that it was a, a broader commentary really on just public mentality in that way and how you can elevate yourself. And it'll it'll work to elevate yourself by putting other people down, but that that's not the ethical way to do it. With, can, with Are you going to do the second thing? I was, but go ahead if you want. Yeah, yeah if I can thank you for, for emphasizing that because I, I absolutely agree with you that that's what they did and they did it they did it by reestablishing his uh, a well regulated at least four times right and yes and so then the question is are they saying that comedy can't really 
I, I feel like there's a danger there of saying like political comedy or or political comedy that is is meant to be thought provoking and progressive in the sense of moving towards social justice can't be done. Well, right, because I actually laughed at his joke. I thought it was funny the first time. It's crazy times, guys, crazy times. So one side is saying, hey, people are killing each other with machine guns. Maybe normal civilians shouldn't have machine guns and only soldiers who are in an active ground war. And then the other side is saying, well, you can't take away machine guns because of the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, you can't regulate guns because of the Second Amendment. So to be clear, your argument is that guns should have no regulations on them because of the Second Amendment, which literally starts with the words, a well regulated. That's literally how it starts. And the whole amendment has 27 words. And three of them are a well and regulated. That's 11.1% folks. Yeah. I don't know what this guy is thinking. This guy is like, but Samir, 11.1% isn't that much. But imagine you're on a plane and halfway through your journey, the pilot comes on and he's like, hey, folks, classic good news, bad news. Good news, we'll be getting you 89% of the way there. Bad news, that puts us at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. It was funny when he delivered it as though it was funny. And then when his delivery got terrible because he thought nobody liked it, then it wasn't funny anymore. But it, Right. The, the 89% of the way to the plane or whatever, to the in flying. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. I just, I guess, yes, I, I agree with you. I agree that that's what they're doing because of my political leanings. I very much agree with them that they're saying like lower comedy, comedy that relies on, I think the word we'd use is othering in sociology for what Laura was talking about with leading to all kinds of isms and othering is more or less a fancy word for in sociology for separating, separating someone or some other type or group of people from yourself and the people that you associate with because once you cast them as somehow distinctly different from yourself, it becomes possible and easier to dehumanize them. Once you've established a, we are these kind of people and they're those kind of people, a hierarchy becomes much more probable. I would have liked if they would have distinguished that that kind of comedy can be done. It's just harder to do. Rather than sort of like it, I, I felt like there was a danger that it, you could have come away thinking that they were saying it just can't be done, which is kind of ironic. It seems like Key and Peele, that's precisely what they try and do is is produce comedy that's that is, I guess, what I would call is hunching up comedy. I kept like coming back is, to that. Is not just putting people down or like they even made fun of like ethnic. He says, right, like I didn't want, I don't want to make just jokes about ethnic stereotypes and cats do this and dogs do this or whatever he said uh uh, yeah yeah i absolutely kept coming back to that same thought like this is a bit weird coming from i don't know jordan peele didn't write it did he he's just 
He's producing it. I think he's probably executive producing it also. Okay. He's, but no, I I don't think he's writing. We might as well just look here. No, he didn't. He did not write or direct the episode. Because I, I didn't think the argument at first, at least, was that you can't do that kind of comedy. But you're right. There's certainly a danger that someone would take that from it. But with his first joke being about his dog, like, oh, you're making the face my dog makes when it poops. Like, it was just a very bland, not having any sort of social commentary, not having any sort of meaning, Disney World vibe, right? Kind of entertainment. Like, we're just going to give you something very... Non-offensive, non-thought-provoking. I, I, I was going to go with Boulder Beer Hall comedy vibe <laughs> rather than Disney World. <laughs> but, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Boulder, Beer Hall, Boulder Beer Hall comedy vibe with the exception of Caitlin Durante. And we will say that was just one show that we went to that happened to be particularly terrible. It was, and honestly, I would even say that it was not entirely not thought-provoking. It just happened to support ideologies that I found really offensive. I think it was pretty low-rent comedy. It, yeah. I think it was, hi, people do this. Oh, I got so fucked up that this happened. I just remember the one guy whose entire routine was based on the premise of, like, it's really dumb to vote. Right. <laughs> like, that was... That was it's his. Dumb to vote. Somebody made some dietary jokes, I feel like. Oh, you're right. There were dietary like, jokes. I mean. Yeah, right. Okay, well, anyway. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. So, right. <laughs> I got stuck on the diarrhea jokes. Um, I think that could have some potential to be problematic. But I also, I took it maybe generously so. I don't know that this is necessarily how I should have taken it. But I took it a little bit as an argument that, that not that, like, you can't do intelligent social commentary sort of comedy, but that it's it's really easy to do it the other way. And and even like I said, outside of comedy, it's oh, yeah. it's just it's really easy to gain status as the 13 year old bully on the playground. That's a it works, it's effective quickly, it doesn't require a lot of thought. You don't have to be real good at it. All you have to do is put somebody down and people will jump on the bandwagon. And they made explicit reference to Trump in the say film, I guess it wasn't a film, in the show. And so I think that to the extent that there could be some commentary on that kind of gaining support by those means, by drumming up, like you said, othering other people, and then getting people to very cheaply be like, hey, these people are terrible. People will love you. It's People will flock to you. Maybe not everybody. Like maybe it was a bit more of a, they were trying to emphasize the metaphor by making the entire audience not interested in political comedy. They could have had a couple people who thought it was funny and the majority didn't, which maybe would have hit the argument better, but then been confusing for a one show. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I, I was kind of willing to let that slide if the argument was really, not that it's impossible, but just that there are like cheap and easy ways to do it. Like this guy wasn't that funny. Apparently the other woman that was doing comedy actually was funny and people liked her and she didn't have to like cheat and put people down. I don't know what her comedy was about. We didn't really hear it, but she didn't have to follow these tactics in order to do unethical things in order to be funny. So just that if you haven't honed your craft yet, you don't really know what you're doing, which could probably be true, honestly, broadly speaking, maybe even in terms of the presidency. Like if you haven't honed whatever it is you're trying to do and don't know how to do it well, if you knock some people down, it's a good way to get ahead. Yes. And yeah, the butterfly effect stuff that you said, or sorry, did you have something you wanted to say oh, on that? Nope, sorry. The butterfly effect stuff was a bit weak. I think it could have been, I mean, it was fine. 
it's kind of like, I almost wish they had completely ignored that problem because by like half addressing it and half not, it did feel super weird that it just like the logic of it kept tripping me up. And I would prefer they actually just grossly neglected logic because that would be better by like trying to almost address it, but then not addressing it well enough. It just made it sort of weirdly confusing throughout. And I was thinking throughout something that you said, I don't remember what you said now that, that triggered this, but when I was saying that I, I like horror better, I really do think that it was by not showing us the horror of what he was doing by glossing over the bad part. Yes, we know it's bad to change the world and make people vanish, I guess. Sure. But by not showing any actual horror of it, it really stripped that of its emotional impact. And so it becomes like an intellectual argument where you know what it's supposed to represent. And that's a place where I think the horror genre really can make arguments very well in a way that other genres don't necessarily. Because if you're talking about morality, there's always the, the sort of bad side of you know, when you're looking at a moral argument, there's a there's a harm to be done. And by really walking people through experiencing that harm, which horror can do when it's done well, I think, that can really effectively help make the argument you're trying to make and give it this emotional punch and kind of rawness that I think is usually does those moral arguments a, a really big service. And by leaving that out in this, I actually felt like it just made the argument weaker and less compelling and less enjoyable to sit through. I I agree. I think they could have amplified the stakes. I think they could have either ignored it or they could have amplified the stakes where like Back to the Future 2 where like things are just going horribly wrong all around but he's still doing fine. And he or even uh did you see sorry to bother you? No. Anyway, yeah, we're He's really just ignoring the fact that he's having all these massive, or maybe not all these really significant impacts on folks' lives, even if they aren't necessarily all bad. It could be uneven. But we could, I don't know, we could have gotten a little clip of a news show or a newspaper. I don't know, there's mass (laughs) starvation here because, and at the same time, there's a cure was, you know, so he realized, just to emphasize, like, that butterfly effect of, okay, I I think I'm doing the right thing or I'm doing this, but I'm totally doing it selfishly. I'm not thinking about these really difficult topics of, like, um, Maybe that person was a horrible bully in high school, and maybe they did actually go on to do something good. And, you know, I'm not defending high school bullies or school bullies. I'm just saying that people can be complicated. Have you ever watched the Dave Chappelle Netflix stand-ups? Not a lot of it, no. Okay, well, massive spoiler. If you're okay with that. Do you have any interest? That's okay. He does this... He did, I mean, they're one, they're really smart comedy, as you would expect, or I would expect from Chappelle. But he he has this ongoing joke that he, he structures the one set around of a superhero who brings joy to the world and makes people laugh and has made progressive changes for communities of color and marginalized community in terms of their public status. And the only problem is when he's not a superhero, his alter ego, his Clark Kent, 
he rapes women. And he talks about Bill Cosby. And that's how he presents that. He he does it abstractly where like that's what he presents. And then he talks about the he talks about four different times he actually met Bill Cosby. Or yeah. It made me think of that set because Chappelle was dealing with how complex and difficult people can be. Or like if we slotted that into this, it would be well you could make Bill Cosby disappear because he's terrible rapist and horrible but he did also then you would never have had the cosby show which arguably changed america's thoughts about stereotypes of black people because it presented a professional upper middle class nuclear black family who were quote-unquote decent and moral and white folks white middle class folks could relate to them Anyway, yeah, I think you see where I'm going. So they they should have done one or the other, like you said. They should have just ignored it all and just made it about him, or, uh, or they should have, or they should have done that, and then you end up in like a, with the horror bit. Um, did you want to? There's one more thing, or I have something else to go, but it's kind of a big branch. Well, I just I, I do think it's crucial also that. Had it been presented as a horror and what you're saying, I absolutely agree with. And then I think that, yes, had it been presented as a horror, it would have, God, it just would have been so much better, (laughs) so much better. And I'm not just saying that. I don't think I'm just saying that because I'm a horror fan. I think I'm discovering something about why I like horror and saying this because it, it really did a huge disservice to the argument they were trying to make to make it the impacts, like you said, were non-existent until they happened to him. And that's weak. Like, that was just a really weak direction to take it. And I think had they really shown what he was doing, they would have been able to draw a much better parallel. Like, when when you put somebody down in order to raise yourself up, in whatever context we're talking about, part of that experience, like you said, is othering and is saying, well, these people aren't like me. So you it doesn't really... That. Or right, I, I think, just wanted to give I think a, you you use the I just other. wanted to give a definition so sure. we can say we're in sociology. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. You're much better at that than I am, so I appreciate that. Right. Right. But right, part of that yeah. experience is othering people such that the impacts that your actions have on them don't matter so much because they're not the same as you. And so the structure of the show by following him and by essentially like they're trying to make an argument that he shouldn't be doing this. And I think that we can say that's true because he kills himself at the end in order right. to like end this because he realizes it's wrong. So if they're trying to make the argument that that's wrong, then they very much presented it in the same othering style where it didn't matter what was going on with these other people. As long as he picked people who were far enough removed from his life, he didn't notice or care. And by not having us emotionally experience any of the impact on them, I think a large chunk of the argument they were actually trying to make got lost on us as the audience. And when it finally does hit him, then it feels in a way it doesn't have the impact it should because it's like, oh, it only matters to you now because it's your life. And even that, it's like we didn't see, we only saw it through his eyes. So we understand that his girlfriend has some job that she doesn't like anymore, but we don't see the effects of that. We don't see her suffer. We have our... Samir saying, oh, well, that was a trip that saved our relationship. And, you know, it's again, it's still all about him. And so if it's really an anti-othering argument, I think walking us through the horror of 
what he did to other people's lives would be crucial in making that argument well. And by skirting it, it it just left something huge out of the impact. Yeah, because, right, because all he learned was that, let me approach that a different way. He didn't learn that just because he doesn't know people, making them disappear didn't have negative impacts on other folks like it did with his girlfriend. What he learned was that he would, uh, oh God, I, I, I'm, uh, see, see if we can figure this out. I feel like what he learned was that, um, he learned like a shallow version of don't be selfish, but in the end, by get, getting rid of himself, he was still being selfish. It was like a selfish suicide, not an altruistic suicide. I don't really think he was thinking, oh, the world would have been better off if I hadn't done this and started doing this. What he was thinking at the end was it was either him or his girlfriend. What happens right at the end? She comes in and confronts him. I guess it, I don't know if it was exactly him or his girlfriend or just he decided he wasn't going to do this anymore because he makes this whole speech about his shallow need to be noticed or known as somebody like, I think he realizes that what he had wanted out of all of this, that he was, I would say that he realizes he's hurting other people. So that what, so he can lift himself up in some way that's really fake and not meaningful. And I think you, you thought because she came in and raised conflict that he was going to get rid of her. And then oh, he doesn't. He gets rid right. of himself instead. Which, so I, I would argue that he was learning that lesson. Roughly, he was learning the lesson that we were supposed to learn. But it, okay, but but yeah, but it was just it was really. That's where you were saying um, the impact of it was really uh, stunted because it was only limited to her. It was very watered down. Watered I feel down, like yeah. because we didn't see any of the real negative impacts. In the way that we could have. And if we had... I honestly think this could have been a really good horror movie. If you cut out actually a lot of the content, because you would need so much more character development that you'd have to only have a few things happen. But it could be a really good horror movie if you really saw the negative impacts of what he was doing such that you saw him as a monster. Because if we saw him as a monster early on, that would have been a very different different film and different experience. And it actually reminds me almost, I don't know if this is a right comparison or not, but it feels like it might be like in pet cemetery when the girl dies and gets hit by the truck and she looks perfect for some strange reason. Right. It felt a little bit like that. We're going to, we're going to take away all the parts that might make you uncomfortable or squeamish about this and roughly make the argument and nothing's going to be missing, right? It'll be perfectly fine. And the thing is, it's not perfectly fine because it's, it's a fundamentally different experience. And by by taking actual tragedy and then watering it down such that it's palatable, or at least it's tolerable, you you do a disservice to the argument that when you're trying to raise that tragedy up as like, this is a problem, you need to show people really what that looks like. And if you don't show them what it really looks like, you can still make the argument. And roughly, we can still get the point, just like Samir roughly got the point. But we didn't feel it, nor did I think Samir feel it the way that we should have. And, and that's a really important argument they were making. Like, yeah, putting other people down just because you've othered them, that doesn't change the fact that that's horribly damaging and that you're raising yourself up in a way that's really not right and unethical. Yeah, we get it, but we get it in like the draft on paper sort of version. We didn't emotionally feel it. 
Absolutely. And I think absolutely. And the pieces where we've talked about depicting sexual assault and then another extreme version of this argument, which I think that's where we like to be is, and I think that's what I find so compelling about, about the rape revenge films. And then son of Saul, I still want to bring up and, and, and arguably the extreme example of this is something that is a historical genocide, like the Holocaust uh, or other slavery, these these historical sufferings and, and represented representations of them. And what you were saying really gets at the heart of what, what I've complained about Quentin Tarantino and, and Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. And I don't need to rehash that here, but I do agree with your, what you're saying. And I think that's a really great argument and revelation about why maybe we're both drawn to horror. Because I agree with you. That totally resonates with me. I was thinking that about that even more, and I kind of like this thread that we've been following with, with Caitlin, who appeared on our episode for Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. And she is a stand-up comedian. And so we had a little bit of... So she does... And her, her focus is representation of women in film which she does in the Bechdel cast with Jamie Loftus. And when she was here, we watched a horror comedy and I was recapping for her where kind of where we're at with our conversations. But what I was saying was this difference that we've talked about where with a horror, with horror, a genre built on transgression, you can either have reinscribing or challenging transgressions. And what I was seeing as I was listening to this as I was editing that episode is that's comedy does that too. Comedy, you're trying to get a laugh either on transgressing a a boundary, either known or unknown, or that's at least a, a, a big piece of comedy. And that transgression can be in ways that put people down or elevate and get people to rethink their preconceived notions. And so there really is a similar operating principle. But for me, comedy still isn't as interesting. And then, okay, so I guess that's the question where I'm at now. I thought I had an idea, but maybe I don't. But maybe just recognizing it is enough right now of, of why doesn't comedy then appeal to me in the way horror does? Because there, I mean, it is. There, there is that underlying similarity and parallel between in much of horror and much of comedy, you're trying to transgress a boundary, a a preconceived notion, an idea, and you can do that in a way that gets people to reconsider why that boundary was there and whether or not it should exist or how it exists or why, or you can do that in a way where and pointing it out, you're re-emphasizing the importance of it. And reinscribe is really the word, right? Reify, I guess, is a more sociological word, maybe. Uh, and maybe that speaks about something to me. I was, I was, God, it's terrible. But my first thought is, I would rather it be horrific if that happens because people need to be punished if they're like wrong for thinking. Like you're not supposed to come away laughing. 
I think maybe that's my what I worry about. The Punish thing, I don't know if I want to leave that. But So if you do that in comedy, if people come away laughing, ah, God, I don't know. I don't know, but I think it's a really interesting question. I really like what you're saying. I'm going to leave that there. It's really interesting. And, and you're right that that exactly hits this conversation we've been having about the ability to either reinforce problematic norms or to challenge them. And you're exactly right that comedy does that. And so does horror. I wonder if it has to do with the tone, because I, I would agree with you, first of all, that I'm more drawn to horror, but I don't know. I mean, I, I like comedy also when it, when it actually does problematize things that are problematic. I mean, then I can, I can really enjoy that. I would say there's more comedy that isn't that way, but then again, there's a heck of a lot of horror that's not that way, and we still like that too. (laughs) There's something about, and this might also just be like a personality trait of mine that I don't know if I should be happy about or not, but I enjoy is not the right word. It feels right to me to be taken through the experience of seeing other people's pain. And by right, I just mean that I feel like I owe it to the world. I feel like I feel like overlooking someone else's pain is just a, a tragedy. It's it's a horrible, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say violence, but maybe I do, that, that you're enacting on people when you fail to see the suffering that they're undergoing. And I appreciate horror when it when it's done well and when it addresses social issues like that. I appreciate the fact that it can really open your eyes and make you feel a way that I, I, I might walk away feeling like, oh, I should have felt that. Like, I should have known that. I should have felt that. And they opened my eyes to it. And now I can I can really feel the emotional impact of why this is wrong, whatever it is, the arguments they're presenting. And comedy doesn't quite do that. It doesn't. So it's like, I don't know. I'm saying I would prefer a walk through depression, I guess, on the way to the end point. But sometimes that feels, like I said, right. But I mean, right, like in a... I owe it to the person who's suffering kind of way to open my eyes to their pain. And I don't know, again, maybe that's, this might be like a bad personality trait. I'm not really sure, but it's super interesting what you're saying. I'm going to think about that a lot. What, what you're saying is a much more elegant and eloquent expression of some of what I was thinking when I was joking about, I think people need to be punished what resonated much more with what you were saying for me was not that people need to be punished, but that people need to be be serious about these things and maybe, maybe not be punished, but when you're dealing with, at least when you're dealing with, you're dealing with topics of dehumanization and violence and the horrors of the world or, or, I don't know, there's just something about comedy taking it lightly where, okay, maybe you rethink that norm, but you still get to come away laughing. Like, you don't, there's no responsibility. I do, I, so it's like you needed to suffer a little bit. Like, and, where, and that's totally me, my personality. Like, you don't get to just laugh and be like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have been so racist these all these years. Or I shouldn't have been so sexist all these years. Ha ha ha. Oh, now I can go about my day and maybe I'll be slightly less racist. I want to at least exact the toll of, of horror, which is, okay, you're going to be miserable and like think 
about your childhood nightmares for an hour or something. And that's the, that's the least we could ask if, if you've been sexist for however many years and you're finally reconsidering it now because you're thinking about it because you're watching this film. But, and I suppose the, the comeback to that would be you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. Is not that the expression? Horror is the vinegar and comedy is the honey. Maybe. See, I think, I think when you started your, <laughs> when you started that sentence by saying, you know, if you're going to be discussing issues of violence, it feels appropriate if you're talking about violence. This is, this is maybe a beef that I have with just like the world in general and people's mentalities, including myself, because we all do this. But the desire to avoid the unpleasant thing, that if you're talking about violence, then you should feel the violence. Because otherwise, how can you how can you really engage in a moral debate about something that involves violence if you don't actually if you gloss over the experience of what that violence feels like, like you need to know what that feels like in order to have the, to have the discussion. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that you can watch a horror film and that's exactly what it's like to be, have violence enacted on you, but it's closer than it is to just make a joke about it or, you know, even, or even like this Twilight Zone episode to make, to make, to lay out all the arguments for you without actually showing the real horror of what's being done, because sometimes I think the impact that that can have and how that sits on your heart is really important. And it does, it seems like disrespectful or or something to skip the experience of the violence. And I do just want to say, I will allow, I totally allow that comedy can be super impactful. I mean, I think of David Cross's first two albums, which are super political. And there's a, Kamal Bell and Hari Kondabolu. Uh, I mean, a lot of The Daily Show, and I would argue that that's, well, no, that's an interesting question. But instead of The Daily Show, we actually just had like a news crew that would walk through the poorest parts of America in the hospital waiting rooms where the insurance, <laughs> the health insurance quote unquote representative is coming through to make sure that you can afford the treatment for your dying whoever before they actually approve it. That could be, that could probably be just as impactful as the daily show. I think the daily show has been more impactful because news is so worthless. Um, I'm getting, there's something I wanted to go back to for a moment. Uh, anyway, so there's, there is totally a space for comedy to be effective and powerful and not rely on tearing down, um, but yes, with, with, oh, oh, that's what I was going to say is, so my mentor through graduate school, Glenda Walden, who is still a teacher, at, uh, an instructor of sociology at CU, she would say in our classes at the very beginning that language is very important for sociologists because language is how we construct reality. The idea of a social construction of reality is that we literally create what we understand about the world through how we talk about it. And so there is also something else about... So what she would say is, for sociologists, the sticks and stones may may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is totally wrong. Sociologists are like, words will absolutely hurt you. They create a space for violence and abuse and mistreatment of all kinds. And that's how you do it, is through language. You construct them as an other, and you proceed from there. But that's really the first step. 
And with comedy, at least with stand-up comedy and specifically, I feel like you can tear down. It, it, there's just less responsibility because you could do comedy that's totally destructive and subtractive and is reliant on othering and tearing down. And then at the end of it, you can say, well, it's just a joke. Don't take it so seriously. Oh, it's just a joke. Don't worry about it so much. It's not like I actually went out and hit somebody or whatever. And that's, it gives people an out, which I don't think horror does. And in fact, I get really upset when people try and take that out with horror. And I've talked about this, like people who aren't able to emotionally engage with the horror film. I, I've made really caustic judgments about those people because they like crack a joke or something. And for me, that cracking that joke is, is them separating themselves from the responsibility of like the cruels of the cruelty of the world, which is a lot to like impugn someone for <laughs> just for cracking a joke in a horror film. But I stand by my, I stand by my conviction. Actually, that's not true. I stand by my conviction if you're going to pay to sit in a theater next to me. Where I don't want to hear your stupid, fucking, lame, emotionally stunning, irresponsible, dehumanizing comment. You'd sit the fuck at home and do that. So, so I wait, wait. In. All right. I, I just have to throw something else out there because that's not actually where I thought you were going with that huh. line of thought. And sure. this is maybe a bit more challenging to things that we've thought or been saying, which I enjoy. So... You talk about comedy giving you the out of saying, oh, that was just a joke. But horror films also, I think, can give you an out. The, the films that use horror to reinforce problematic stereotypes absolutely can give take the same out of like, oh, it's just a horror movie. It's just, movie. It's right. just oh, that's just, oh, yeah, well, that's just an old trope that we, you know, kill a bunch of barely clothed women because it's like a horror movie, whatever. That's what Fine, we do. Right. And a lot of the stuff, even I'm going to say that we dismissed in Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which granted was like comedy horror, but still, I feel like there was like, well, it's just, a, it's a movie about horror. So like, of course, you're going to follow some of these tropes and that's just kind of how it goes. There is a little bit of that also. So maybe it was the bo- worst of both worlds instead of the best? What about the worst? I mean, I wouldn't but go, maybe. no, well... I wouldn't go there. Tucker and Dale, though, was interesting in that it was I keep coming back to Caitlin's comment about how uh, I think I asked the question of it's strange because we talk about whether it's ethical to show violence in in this film. I felt like that question didn't apply in a weird way that I couldn't I didn't understand. And she said, oh, it's because nobody actually enacted violence on anybody else. And I thought, oh, man, that's really interesting. That's true. That's absolutely true. And so in a way, it, it wasn't. I don't. Yeah, that's really interesting. The, the movie falls into a different category somehow, so I'm not quite sure what to do with that. I will say, I think there's some defense for me of... I, I still like, just because I like the movie so much, I still want to I kind of have this defensiveness about it. We talked about how terrible representation of women is in the film, and it was unsuccessful in these ways, but that is really neat. That's really interesting in and of itself, of just that nobody... There wasn't an actor. There wasn't an agent that really ended up killing anyone it was a comedy of errors right and so the actual moral message that it presented was was a good versus evil kind of message but it wasn't centered around the violence at all which was very different from horror in general so i just wanted to say there is some redemption in the film just that it was able to do that which is different and that's really interesting but yeah that was a great comment uh, it, that was her who emphasized that yeah yeah i haven't gotten that part i guess in the editing but yeah good yeah i mean 
But so anyway, all I wanted to throw out there was that if we're going to critique comedy or say that comedy, you know, allows for this option to distance yourself and laugh about it and whatever, a lot of horror does too. And we don't always notice it right away. You know, I mean, I really liked Tucker and Dale. I told you, I, I liked it so much the first time I recommended it to like everybody. And then I watched it again and I was like, oh no, why did I send all those text messages? Because now I kind of want to take them back and be a little more thoughtful about this. And the same thing with like, what was it? Summer of 84, which I know we've reemphasized a whole lot, but that was absolutely our experience. We left being like, that was a really good movie. And then we had to talk about it and thought, oh, okay, hang on. Maybe we don't really mean that so much. So I don't know. Maybe we don't really have cause to say that horror or comedy is better as a genre, but we're back to how you, you, you can do either really irresponsibly and... I still want to defend horror because I, I mean, I have a stake. I just, I still have this intuitive feel that there is an actual distinction and actual defense of horror over comedy. My next thing is I was going to say there's such a low bar to comedy. Jackass apparently in the city who's like, uh, Samir entitled and egotistical and selfish and privileged or, or many of them privileged enough to feel like they can stand in front of a crowd can go do stand-up comedy. I suppose you could say any jackass with a camera could make a horror film, but yeah, I don't know I was, if that's quite I, the same. Two things. One, I do think, though, that you're a bit glorifying horror. I'm just saying there's a lot of crap out there in horror. There's a whole lot of crap. And I, I absolutely, I feel like if you'd look at like the shining examples of comedy and the shining examples of horror addressing the same issue, I'm on, I'm in the horror side too. And so I agree with you. I think there is something to be said in that argument about horror having a greater potential than comedy, not necessarily to reach the largest crowd maybe, but to deliver what I think would be a, a really impactful message and maybe that's just personal opinion i don't know Um, okay so there's another idea depth versus breadth oh yeah sure breadth horror yeah i I mean i agree i I totally agree with what you're saying can i say one more thing yeah just to tie tie this back to the twilight zone we are we're actually talking about I, I I'm digging in harder on that argument over the course of this conversation that that could be done so much better as a horror And so, and I don't know if this is going to be true of all the Twilight Zone episodes or many of them, but if they're tackling moral issues, if you do that in a way that that waters down the bad side of the moral teeter-totter, I think you're doing a disservice to that argument. And I I I wonder if the Twilight Zone would just be better as a horror. Maybe less palatable, but maybe that's good. Right. I think you're, I mean, clearly I'm on your side. I agree in particular with this particular episode, it had all of the elements of horror except the horror. Like we were talking about, it has the editing, it had the camera work, it had the lighting, it had the the dark story, it had death. It had morality. I mean, it had and morality. It, was... it, it just didn't have the the ramifications, really. It was absolutely the pet cemetery girl getting hit by a truck. That's how the horror happened in this. Right, right. There's one other thing I just remembered. Did you ever see the film Butterfly Effect? Yeah. I was obsessed with that movie for a little while. Really? I actually thought it was really great. Hmm. You're like... <laughs> <What>? <laughs> that sounded like a pity. Like, oh. No, it wasn't... 
<laughs> Ashton Kutcher was in it, wasn't he? I, I understand that. <laughs> uh, I, I'm aware. I don't remember having super strong feelings about it. I remember when I learned about the butterfly effect, thinking that was absolutely fascinating. So maybe I just delved into that line of thought at a different time than in the movie. I don't know. I just thought with all we discussed, like I thought that was, I mean, they took a very different route, but I, that was a more horrific twist. I just don't know if I'd call it horror, but it was definitely like a more horror twist on a kind of a similar idea. And I really, yeah, I was really obsessed with that movie for a little while. There was a time when I was watching it multiple times a day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That didn't last super long, but still. That's weird. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> so, there you go. Um, so, this kind of thing could be done in a, in a more horror way. And I, and I think it did well to show, like, impacts and and uh, unintended consequences and all that kind of thing. Do you have anything else? No, I don't think so. All right. And if you can hear my roommate's toothbrush, we try. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we can only get so long with uh, without any any without with silence in the apartment. Uh, he is generous enough to give us this time and space pretty frequently, so can't complain too much. Done. All right. That was good. That was good. That. Yeah. That How long was yeah. it? Long, huh? One twenty-three. Wow. All told. It's way longer than the episode. <laughs> right. That's okay. Yeah, no, that's cool. I mean, it's fine. It almost... Um, I actually think that was kind of cool because we still got our discussion out of it and we shaved an hour off. You know. Yeah, no, it was great. I think it's a great idea, actually. Especially having had the conversation about it. I... Yeah. I like where it went. I like it when I leave feeling like I learned something about, about like our, I feel like our overall body of knowledge and conversation keeps growing. And I feel like we just got a new little piece in there that I don't I think, think we should add it to our most interesting questions. Yeah. Which I still think is a list we should actually like. Like write down. Yeah. Or, you know, that two year anniversary episode that we have planned. <laughs> right, since we we've totally, just missed the one year We should year totally completely. do that. Yeah. The other thing I would like to say about the episode in particular is it also bothered me that it didn't disrupt the cycle. I either wanted him to become the new JC, whoever, whoever Tracy, what was his name? Yeah, I don't know. Whatever, whoever Tracy Morgan is. Then he's the guy sitting at the bar who had given up everything and gone through all this. And then it was why, why is, and then we still didn't know why Tracy Morgan was was doing this. And so there could have been something that really tied it tightly where like, because we talked about this with Pet Cemetery too, of like, why did you go bury the kid? Well, if you have in the story that, that Judd's dog had a mean streak. And so, but Gage is a pure example. So it he might still, and the land compels you to like, tell the story to keep it alive. That's, I guess, that's really the key thing. The, the, the pet cemetery land compels you to tell someone else you can't die with the secret for whatever reason. Then that, that really ties things together. And it, they did that in the big original film, the first film. They did not do that here. With this, we didn't get an explanation. And if by him telling Samir about it, that released him 
from, I don't know, he could go back to actually inter- interacting with people. Uh, and then Samir takes over and he is, I mean, that would have really tied like, what, how does this keep going? Why does this keep going? And it would have given us also a, an explanation of, of why this is, why, how Tracy Morgan got into this position and how it, it's perpetuated. Or you break the cycle. And like I said, I still like the idea of you, you get rid of Eddie, you get rid of the comedy hall, you go back, you reset Rita or Rena. Rena is still a lawyer. The Devin, the cousin, is still around. All this other, everything else resets. And maybe he is painting now or something, but that would have broken the cycle. But either, but again, we didn't get either of those. We got unresolved. We got, okay, Samir's gone, but now Tracy Morgan's just going to tell this other woman. And, and particularly because we don't know what her comedy is. It's like, is he just sitting there marking every comic? Cause I mean, Samir, it, it, it made sense because he was not funny but if she's already funny what's he going to tell her it was it's it's not tied up you're absolutely right and there was an air of futility about the the commentary on comedy right and whether that could potentially be politically or socially active or not and then like you said this idea about well how do you end it how do you stop it and i guess Samir removes himself from it. So it makes it sort of this individualistic, agentic kind of argument of you shouldn't participate in this, which, which is okay. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad argument, but to tie it to some sort of larger, right, how do you break the cycle argument would have been good. The only thing I can see that maybe would have been effective in that is setting a tone of futility could be depressing in a way that would actually be effective. If, you know, if they did that so much, I don't know that they did it enough because I think as you're bringing this up, I feel like, oh, that's, yeah, it was there, but it wasn't really there. But I'm almost thinking of like a Black Mirror kind of vibe where we're going to lay this out as this is the only way to get ahead. And, you know, the only way to stop it is, well, you can take yourself out of the game, but the game continues and just lay it out as like, there's no changing this for the purpose of stoking a fire and people saying, oh God, no, there's got to be a way to change it. That could have been effective. It would have been darker. Yeah. Yeah. I almost like that. Like, I almost think if we were going to write this horror movie, maybe I would want to do that with it to just lay out, like to make the message of the film be like, give up. Because if you do that heavy enough, I think you can have the opposite effect and have it be effective. Right. Right. But they should have picked one path or the other. Yeah. Again, my takeaway is I enjoyed it. But that may be some of it, my nostalgia and my history with the show. I did appreciate the ideas. Our issues seem really conceptual with, but also conceptual but fundamental of, of they should have either, your point of they should have either ignored the logic of all these other people disappearing completely, or they should have given us a, a, a much larger sense that he is toying with the world and he just doesn't care because he's been sucked into the joy of applause. And for me, this the cycle bit of it, I, I also want one or the other. I want to know why it's perpetuated, why this comic, comic why is Tracy Morgan there? Is this going to just go on forever, which would have been fine. But if it's going to go on forever, we do need a, a why. For him to just start talking to a DD doesn't, it mud- muddies everything. 
or you break the cycle somehow. My last piece, go, no, go ahead. I was just going to say some kind of prescriptive commentary would have been helpful in that for sure. Yeah. My last piece, I was, my thought was like, why did, why can't Samir just walk away? And I suppose the idea is he can't just walk away because he has to, he has to reset the damage he's done. So if he gets rid of himself, then he hasn't gotten rid of her mentor. So she ends up back in a good position just without him. But he was just in the position of he had this great success without her. So now she's in the position of she has this great success without him. That's still not really, uh, you know, like, yeah, okay, she's a lawyer now. But again, they, so they, that's, ugh. but if he had just walked away, I don't know. It just, it just wasn't all tied together. So I still stand by. I feel like it was a good warm up. For a first episode of a show, I felt it definitely had a lot of redeeming value and potential. I would like to see them hone and refine some of those pieces moving forward to, and I do feel like, I think some of that is also my expectation because I do think the Twilight Zones in the past were, were tight. They were really, the, at, by the end we've, the protagonist has learned the lesson or some sort of lesson. They've gone through a character arc, but they've been able to reset or the character has gone through this and they know it can never be the same. And so they've been changed by that and they have to live with that realization or that horror or that experience or whatever. I, I just don't think that, I, I don't remember them being left with muddiness. Well, this makes me really want to see the grandma one that you said was good. Maybe we can track that down. Do you well, have, have it? it? Oh, you have totally, it. Yeah. Oh, that's totally, that's why you said it's like 20 minutes. Let's yeah. let's do that for sure. I think it's the episode Stephen King wrote. Yep. Let's watch it. Based on the short story of the same name by Stephen King published in the collection Skeleton Crew, which is also one of my favorite Stephen King. Okay, but that... I, I mean, I fully appreciate what you're saying. I just, I mean, we could end up talking about it for another hour. We could try to be short. Okay. Well, anyway, we can we, set that aside for a second. We're, but... we're an hour and 12 minutes in. <laughs> this is going to be a mini No, I was going to give you, I just want to give my closing comment on this. Please. And then I felt like we could move on to watching that maybe, but maybe we don't have time. Anyway, um, I think the biggest takeaway I got from this was it was really fun to go with you into something that was outside our genre and see how much I miss about our genre. And, and a lot of that came out through watching this through a conversation with you because we only play around in horror. And then, you know, I, I do consume other forms of media in life, but I don't sit around and talk about them forever afterwards like this and talk about the ethical responsibility of producing it. Oh, and Daniel so, the Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Tiger? Is, it, Daniel, is, is there a the in there? The Daniel. No, just Daniel. Daniel's, da- Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. Daniel Tiger? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. And other things occasionally. <laughs> it's rare. But... I feel like this was actually really interesting. My biggest take home is on the utility of horror, not just as a visceral sort of like, oh, it's fun to be scared, but as a really morally impactful, like that genre by opening you up to both the good and the bad set of experiences really allows you to much more fully flesh out moral arguments than a genre that's going to gloss over the bad part. I I miss, I miss our our normal... (laughs) 
<laughs> I miss our normal little genre. I agree. But I really did enjoy the discussion as always. So, yeah. Should we end it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We appreciate you listening. My name is Marshall. And I'm Laura. And you can find us on Instagram at Collective Nightmares. On Twitter at Collect Night, all one word, N-I-G-H-T. Email us. You can go to the website, collectivenightmares.com, and our contact information is up there. And we'd love it if you're listening. Like like us, subscribe us, subscribe to us, review us, especially on iTunes, and recommend us to your friends and anyone you know who enjoys horror films and movie discussion or thinking about how to be a good person (laughs) or that horror films are our collective metrics Welcome. This is the Collective Nightmare. Nope, I don't have anything set up yet. Set up? Oh. Like, got it. who things are, whatnot. <laughs> is it working currently? Oh, yeah, there you go. That's okay. probably crucial. Looks like it is. That we need to do that. I think. Should we do, like, the talk close to the mic, like <laughs> Caitlin suggested? Oh, did she? She did. Oh, like, really close. Like, Uh, right up in there. Apparently, yeah, I think so. Okay. Sounds good. That's going to be weird. (laughs) It seems like people do that. Maybe they do. What's that smell like? Like Did you ever watch Howard Stern? Yeah. (laughs) The mic has a smell. It's not a bad smell. It's just a smell. It's like a distinctive smell. Do you smell that? Yeah. I don't know what it is. All right, we got microphones going. Me a lot. We can't touch the table. No touching the table. The synopsis from IMDb is a stand-up comic incorporates details about people he knows into his routines. Unaware that every joke results in someone being erased from existence. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, I'm going to do my own synopsis off the top of, the, top of my head because I don't like that person who contributed that to IMDb.
just laid it out there. Oh, kitties. Uh, I'm gonna send it down the hallway so I can't. You two boogers. Did you grab it? It's funny they don't hardly ever play with that <laughs> toy. It's always oh god. Omar and Kima, you're naughty kitties. I feel like this episode's gonna cut together oddly so far because we keep having these long interruptions. A brief intermission for the naughty collective nightmares keys. Okay. <laughs>